is uh, Philippians, this letter that Paul has written to people that he loves, a church that he is very affectionate uh, toward. And over 20 times uh, he had said this to them, uh, rejoice, or some form of, of joy is commended to them. 20 plus times in this letter he has said that uh, again and again. And so I'll begin where I started. At the very beginning I said this, it's sometimes attributed to C.S. Lewis, uh, a quote that I think is important. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. You can substitute the word joy there. Don't let your your joy, your happiness, depend upon something that you might lose. Now, this summer, we've all seen it, right? We, we Any of you on social media, you've seen it. It happens every uh, summer, inevitably. I said this at the very beginning of our study as well, 12-plus weeks ago when we opened Philippians. You see the person, they're at the beach uh, with the family, or maybe they're taking a selfie or at the entrance of Disney World and uh, or, you know some pleasant scene in the background. Maybe Disney World is not a pleasant scene for you, I don't know. But uh, maybe you're at the beach, you know, and you see the person, and, and the, the caption says, Ah, my happy place. My happy place. It depends on a family vacation, a gathering, a location, a company of people, maybe a lack of company. My happy place for you is alone with a book, uh, whatever it may be, a checklist of responsibilities, that recreational activity that you enjoy, a hobby. It involves maybe a, a place, maybe involves people, maybe involves both. But maybe it, you, would, you would view it this way. It's the place where you would have guaranteed. Now, that would be too strong of a word because that can go away really fast. A, a greater likelihood of contentment and joy in that particular place, right? You can construct it. You can describe it. What is it for you? Where is it for you? With whom is it or with whom out is it? Take that. Put it in your mind for a second. What if someone came to you and said that they proposed that they have discovered, they, they have a, a laser focus on this, they have discovered the way to find and enjoy contentment always. You might be interested. You might be inclined. You might want to learn more. You might be entirely cynical. You might be jaded. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, hurry up. What are you trying to sell me? You might say, well, maybe you have discovered that for you, but if you knew me and my circumstances and, and my story and my struggles and my boss and my spouse and my children and my ailments and my bank account and my, then you would never propose that you have discovered the secret of contentment. Paul says, I have Christ. Earlier in Philippians, he says, so much so that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a sense that kind of permeates the whole letter, right? A, a sense of confidence and a sense of clear joy that is anchored somewhere else. Let's read it together. I invite you in deference to God's word to stand again. Philippians, we're going to close it out. Philippians 4, verse 10. If you have a pew Bible, it's 982 is the page. Hear this. This is the word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but not had, you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever 
situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that I, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I... Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, verse 19, will supply, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You may be seated. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Lord, you know uh, the hearts um, in this room. You know the struggles. You you are aware, acquainted with the pains, the temptations, uh, the places of apathy, of anger, of Anxiety, and people need clarity. Your people need wisdom. So please work by your spirit. Have your kingdom come and your will be done. For Christ, amen. Sometimes in our home, uh, when we're trying to uh, you know, read something and we stumble across a difficult concept or a challenging word, uh, one of the things that I do with our, our kids is I say, What does that word mean? And then I say, maybe to help us understand it, what does it not mean? What is the what is the antonym? Right. You could say we would be maybe reading something. You come across the word prudent. And I say, well, let's pause there. What does the word prudent mean? And then inevitably, one of my wise children would say the opposite is imprudent. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's that's correct. Yes. But but what does it mean? No, the opposite of prudent would be. Careless. So to be prudent is to be careful, and you 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 get the impression you understand. And so, to our text here today, what does it mean? What is what does contentment mean? Well, let's maybe consider what what is the what is what is the opposite of content. I knew it. I just wanted to wait for the wise guy award to be given away. Thank you. You won that. Maybe it's for you it's 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 miserable. The opposite of content would be miserable. The opposite of content would be deeply troubled. I I sometimes associate discontent with with a restlessness, right? And and then e- even something beyond that which would actually coupled with that would be a a covetousness, like a restless covetousness is the opposite of living in contentment. All of this is addressed, at least in part, by Paul here at the closing of a a letter to people that he loves. Two themes that I see here. One is the secret of contentment. And the second, as I have listed there in the order of service, is the fruit of generosity. The secret of of contentment. You may want to attribute the number of times that Paul has said that they ought to have joy or even now hear contentment or that he's had that. 
you could attribute to the fact that he is either in a really good mood or he's in a really good place or both. But the truth is, it's neither. Because Paul's not going to just commend to people and he hasn't, uh, you know, a, a particular forced emotion. And he certainly is not in a place that anyone would associate with contentment or joy. He is in prison to remind us, right? And that's actually been not just his present struggle. It has been his struggle every time he writes just about he's either on the run or he's in trouble. And if you look back and, and, and you can read of this in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he describes it. He talks about how more than anyone he's had more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. Just floating. Out in the ocean. That's pretty scary. On frequent journeys and dangers in rivers. Dangers from Rogers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and in exposure. He was naked. And yet, Paul says, I have no need. I, I am contented. No, Paul is not insane. What's the opposite of the secret of contentment? I mean, what's the opposite of a secret? The opposite of a secret is something that is blatantly obvious. And so here, the opposite of that contentment would be an obvious default towards things like grumbling. Or like I said, the coveting restlessness, especially, not only, you know, I mean, given our culture and society where everything is, is supposed to be instant and comfortable and convenient and uh, accessible and quick and you fill in the blank, catered to my own personal, 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 personal preferences – Soft and luxurious. But it's especially difficult. And it especially surfaces its ugly head in the sour and the frustrated circumstances of our life. We know this. Discontent, it's like discord. And when James talks about discord between people in James 4.1, he says that it comes from a particular place. It's the heart. It's the desires of the heart. So the discontent that we all experience... Maybe even this very day, this very moment, originates in the heart and it operates in the realm of every age, talent, family, regardless of your looks or intelligence, your career, the list goes on and on. Last week we talked about anxiety. That's another real struggle of the human experience. And anxiety, the worst type of anxiety, the wrong form of, of concern and worry, shows up, I said, in the phrase, what if? Right? What if? What if this? What if this comes to pass? What if that doesn't happen? What if so-and-so does? What if this could? What if I contract? What if, what if, what if? And here, concerning contentment, I want to say that the problem is not the phrase, what if, but if only. As it pertains to contentment, the problem is that phrase. I'm just trying to... Kind of simplify it, right? To your own, to, to your own internal dialogue. It's the if only. You know what it sounds like. 
If only I had better health, a faster car, a bigger retirement. If only I had a normal family like they do, my life would be easy. If only I had better parents. If only I had better children like hers, my life would be sane and simple. If only I had more money. If only I was married. If only I wasn't married. If only, if only, if only. Those are if only statements. They're actually if only lies. Because you, you and I, we tell ourselves these statements, but they're really a lie. Because we think if we had this or we didn't have that, then we would be contented and satisfied and fulfilled. But then we get them and we're not. Okay, so let's let's go back to let's go back to the opposite, right? Let's go back to some of the inverse. It's Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes. What does the writer say? I mean, contentment is a beautiful thing, but what is what's again here? Maybe a, a bit of an opposite. Ecclesiastes five, verse ten. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now you fill that in with anything, anything at all, and it will always end just like that. He or she who loves blank will not be satisfied with blank. Lest one thing. He who loves God will be satisfied with God. So true. But is there anything that we desire or love that could be said? Sure, sure, not money. All of those things, every one of them, less God. He is the only one, the one whom we could say, if you love him, you will be satisfied. Contentment begins, therefore, with the eternal God, and it leads to eternal life. There was an old Puritan... Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. There's a reason it's titled that, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it, is, it is rare, and it is a jewel when you find it. Like wisdom, more precious than gold, more costly uh, than silver, nothing you can desire compares to her wisdom, Proverbs says. Contentment is that rare jewel. And Jeremiah Burroughs says this, that there is also a false form of contentment. Because you've met people that give you every impression that they are content, but internally, somewhere along the way, they're actually deeply not. And sometimes it's actually a a form of a self-centered contentment. This is what Burroughs writes, very insightful. If I become content by having my desires satisfied, that is only self-love. But when I am contented with the hand of God and am willing to be at his disposal, that comes from my love to God. But then he goes on to talk about real contentment, which is seldom not found by having big desires met. But when we desire the wrong things, when we desire little things. My brethren... Burroughs goes on to write, the reason why you have not gotten contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not gotten enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportional to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Let me make it simple. Your goldfish can swim around 
in a pot this big and be content with blue stones here and little flakes up here. True? But that's their capacity. You are made in the image of God. You have the capacity to know, love, and serve God. To be in relationship with God in our hearts and lives. Contentment, friends, is not found in some type of Buddhist notion of emptying our, ourselves of desires. It's not found in denying the need for gain, but, but wanting God. Desiring what God wants for me because he wants the best for us more than we do. It's hard to embrace this, right? It's hard to, it's hard to walk in this. And it's one of the reasons I'm really glad that in verse 12 he says... He learned contentment (laughs) because it was not overnight. It was not instantaneous. It was a process. And and he was he was in, you know, the journey in the pursuit and in the the layered, you know, steps towards gaining and learning. And then he says this phrase in verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. One of the most common verses taken completely out of context in all of the Bible I know, I know. But let me tell you, it can get misapplied. It doesn't mean that you can fulfill your selfish desires through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can refresh that bitter thought through Christ who strengthens me. And I can wrestle crocodiles single-handedly because Christ strengthens me. Sorry if that was your life ambition, students. I don't know, but that's not Christ's ambition for you. Here's the context. I can be content and joyful and plenty and want through Christ who strengthens me. That's what I can do. All things, all, all form of, of, of joy and contentment I can have through Christ who strengthens me. Do you believe this? Do you feel low today? That's Paul described that. He, he knows what it's like to feel low. He knows what it's like to be Betrayed by friends uh, to be his reputation to be marred for people to gossip about him. How do you feel today? Do you feel wronged? Do you feel do you feel low? Do you feel hungry? Do you feel imprisoned by your circumstances? Do you feel anxious today? I don't have any one person in mind. I have all of us in mind right now. A couple of months ago, I was driving. uh, on a back road over to Lowe's. That's a place you can commonly find me, is at Lowe's. Um, <laughs> I, I like Lowe's. I, I, uh, I was making my 14th trip on a Saturday to Lowe's, and, <laughs> and, and, and it got a little bit crazy around this bend, and, and, and a person rear-ended me. And so I, I pull over on the side, and... Uh, and uh, I, I, I get out saying to myself, I've done this to other people, 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 you know, trying to be compassionate. And it was easy because I looked down and I look over and there's this girl and she's a teenage girl. And she's already on the phone with her mom who conveniently worked just like, you know, a tenth of a mile away. who's already on her way over there. And the girl, this young teenage girl is clearly physically overwhelmed. She's fine. The car is fine pretty much. I mean, I'm not concerned, but she's 
on the verge of hyperventilating. And I've never seen goosebumps in July on a person's body like that ever. I mean, it was it was sad. And I said, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's totally fine. I'm not even upset. And it'll be just fine. And her mom shows up and her mom, her mom says, don't worry, honey. She's like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what if this? And what if that? And if alums, and, and she's crying and she says, sweetheart, this is what insurance is for. And I said, actually, no, no, no. It's actually not. I, it, there's only a little mark on this bumper and there's bound to be more down the road. So just don't worry about it. It's fine. We don't need to deal with this at all. You know the scenario. You have a problem and you say, no worries. For this we have blank. We've seen it in our advertisement. You know, there's the commercial with a child who spilled a whole glass of juice on the carpet. Oh, it's okay. This is what we have bounty for. <laughs> you see the commercial where the guy's on the work side and the job side and his headache is pounding. And someone says, this is what we have Excedrin for. Charles Price, who is a British pastor, he's now in Canada, tells the story of a man in his congregation, a wise, older, godly, humble, faithful follower of Jesus. And he he had this saying that he would utter. It was a mantra for his life. For this, I have Jesus. For this, he would say, I have Jesus. He, he was so well known for it and he wanted to commend it to other people that he actually printed it on these, these velvet bookmarks and he would give them out to people. For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. And Charles Price talks about how when this man one day was very ill, he had suffered a stroke, he had to go to the hospital, he had returned home and he, he rang the guy, calls him up, he talks to his wife, and he says, I'd like to speak with him. She said, that's fine, but I'll just go ahead and warn you. You're not going to understand a single word of his slurred speech. But sure enough, when he got on the phone with this man, he could make out what he was saying. For this, I have Jesus. Would you, could we just say that together? For this, I have Jesus. Is that the Jesus that you know, the the suffering servant and the sovereign king? The eternal God who knows you, who loves you, who's promised things like what we see here in verse 19 so clearly. And my God will meet every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Professor, author Michael Horton writes, it's not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the Lord, but the confidence that if God provided so richly for our salvation by choosing, redeeming, calling, adopting and justifying us and by sending his spirit to grow us in Christ's likeness, then surely we can count on him for the less essential matters of daily existence. Just think about that. Past, present and future brothers and sisters Our past sins Christ has covered. My guilt is gone. My present struggles are not hopeless because Christ's spirit. My future is not known to me, but it's known to one who has authority and control, who is Christ. Who has gone even to prepare that I can expect for a great and glorious inheritance, a gain 
that has been offered to me because of Christ, his death and resurrection. And by the way, my every need, verse 19 being met, is not something that we get to define. God gets to define what my every need is that he's going to meet. Sometimes, so often, he exceeds those, of course. But he also changes those. What do I mean? There's nothing wrong, friends, please hear me, with praying for mercy that God would indeed change your circumstances. There's nothing wrong with, with praying for a new boss, a new spouse, not a new spouse, a spouse. <laughs> I love you. I, I, I do. I, I, I love you so much. I, I don't know if I'm going to recover from that one at all. Um, there is nothing wrong with praying, God, give me healing. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, please uh, provide for this financial need. Lord, change this or, or, the, or these circumstances. But there's also nothing wrong with praying for perseverance. There's nothing wrong with praying for, for faith. There's nothing wrong with praying for contentment. What we should long for. Does that make sense? There's nothing wrong with praying for perseverance internally so that if and when, if never, the circumstances change externally, I still have that inwardly. What we should long for is contentment in Christ because Jesus says, I know you are tired and weary of your circumstances. He knows the weight of this broken world. Jesus looks at us. He says, I know you are thirsty. I know you are hungry. I know you are weary. Come to me, find rest and find satisfaction. And he who loves Jesus will be satisfied with Jesus. For this, for this, I have Jesus. Whatever you bump into, joy or sorrow this week, for this I have Jesus. Let's quickly highlight this second theme that he commends to them, he thanks them for, and that is the fruit of generosity. The reason I call it fruit is because one of the ways that we know, and one of the ways that we detect that we have gained some measure of contentment is that we're comfortable with giving away our time and our resources. True? Discontent, discontented people hold it very tightly. And who misses out? They and others, sadly enough. But that's not why Paul missed out. He didn't miss out. In fact, he's well supplied because of their generosity, he says. And what I'm saying is we can easily part with our money or give away our time and not be anxious or greedy or overly cautious. Again, nothing inherently wrong with desires. Nothing inherently wrong with being cautious or careful. I touched upon that last week. Even that might motivate you to action. It could be a very good thing. If you want a different job, it might motivate you to have a better work ethic. If you want a friendship, it might motivate you to pursue and enter into community and to be the friend that you want to have. It might motivate you to do any number of things. There's nothing wrong with wanting things like love or food or intimacy. There's nothing bad about possessions or even desiring them. But when desires creep in and they crawl and they grow and we feed them and they become demands... Demands such that we cannot be satisfied without which, without that, then we have a problem, like greed and anxiety. When we become preoccupied and obsessed with those longings, we have covetousness. When we're willing to compromise to gain, when we're willing to forfeit generosity in our budget because we want that new blank. When we're willing to compromise purity because we want intimacy. 
Paul thanks them for their generosity and their sharing. The church at Philippi, they had sent Epaphroditus on, and this is what he's sending back to them. He had come, Epaphroditus, with supplies, physical, tangible ways to sustain him in prison and and in his trial. And then they're sent back with this letter to them. And he expresses his love, and he thanks them. I love this, this phrase. For verse 14 says that you had shared with my trouble with it was as it was as if it was their trouble, too, that he was concerned. It was not at arm's length. It was not it was not something that they were disconnected from, even though miles and miles separated them time and time again. They give time and time, even when others didn't. And it says here that they didn't uh, even when others stopped, he says in verse 15, they kept on contributing. Unless we become confused and think, well, wasn't it nice? You know, I used to say to myself, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to be rich so I could be generous. Well, what stops you from being generous right now? And who's to say you aren't already rich living where you live? Lest we think that they had plenty and that's why they were generous. Don't be mistaken because it's very clear, it's very obvious that in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the generosity of the churches in Macedonia, of which Philippi was one. And it says they gave in their deep poverty, not their crumbs, not their abundance. They gave in their poverty. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. He could have stopped there. That would be wise. But here's the promise attached to it. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Some people, I am persuaded, do not have the fruit of any form of abundance because they are not generous. And this is because they are not content. And even when they have great wealth, which is not hard to come by in our culture... They still lack joy and contentment. Just a few words for close and application. First of all, stop comparing. I mean, not that Paul had any other reference point. Goodness gracious. I mean, think about that. But but for us, stop comparing and get accountability from your friends, from your spouse, even your kids. And you keep that pattern going with your eyes and your comments. Stop traveling in places that tempt you to coveting discontent. Second thing I would say is repent. Repent of the if only, if only lies that we believe and we listen to because it violates God's character and his law. Then I would say when you notice a reoccurring desire, ask God to show you it as if to set it apart. Whether it's possessions or a station or a relationship or a change of circumstances, ask wise Christian friends to help you open God's word and then ask him for it. And if he says no or he seems to be waiting a pretty long time, then wait on the Lord. Pray for faith and contentment. He wants us to find it. And even if it seems to regularly evade us or maybe even if we resist Him, the giver of that contentment, he comes to us. He may seem very slow, I'll admit, and changing our circumstances, but he is not, my friend, stingy. He, our Father in heaven, is not unwilling to mercifully show us or teach us contentment through his grace and through his spirit. Last thing I would say is start giving. Today. 
Today's always a good day to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Start carving out more of your time, more of your money to just give away. And you won't miss it. I, I, I have not. He's worthy for this. For this, we have Jesus. Father in heaven, we ask right now you would help this study of Philippians to shape and mold our lives to be more like Christ. We've read a lot about joy. We've also read a lot about suffering. And those operate so often in parallel for the people of God, for the children of God. And there are children, brothers and sisters in this church who are in a season of suffering with their family, with their relationships, with their health. They're waiting on you. I pray you would show mercy, you would strengthen them and grant, grant to them perseverance. For the people who, are very, who live with great uncertainties, we know that Paul did, and we can too. And whatever it is this week, whatever temptation, we can say, for this I have Christ. That you've met every need, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So please help us. Lord, we do remember today people who have extraordinary circumstances and suffering in places and parts of the world like Haiti, like Cuba, like Afghanistan, persecuted countries, brothers and sisters in Christ who face all forms of threat. Lord, please be merciful to them. Help us to be mindful, Lord, humble, thankful people. Help us to be a joyful people that people would see this week in our conversations and in our interactions and our priorities. They would see Jesus. They would see your workmanship and they would praise you, our Father in heaven. For Christ's sake, we pray. Even now, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our Father, who art in heaven.